Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Training and Members Committee. I'm Dr. Marilena Giannudi and I am on the TMC and this morning I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Davenport who is a consultant general neurologist with a specialist interest in epilepsy. He runs a weekly first fit clinic and is based in Edinburgh and I can think of no one better to discuss with us as per the journey that a patient may go through when they're first being diagnosed with epilepsy. So Dr. Davenport's welcome. Good morning, Marilena. Thanks very much for inviting me. So if it's okay with you, I think it's important for us to start the patient journey as a patient would. So I think we're all relatively familiar with referring somebody to a first fit clinic. But what happens from your point of view when you first meet them? So I suppose a slightly facetious answer is a lot of talking, but it's not that facetious because it really comes down to how we make the diagnosis, which is really basically history driven, which is a lot of talking. So I think probably the first thing to say is that I view first seizure clinics very much like a TIA clinic. In other words, it's a sort of ideally a rapid access clinic with not too restrictive referral criteria because you need to be seeing plenty of things that aren't first seizures to make sure you include all the first seizures. In other words, you have to cast your net wide and people who do TIA clinics are very used to seeing non-TIAs and it's the same in a first seizure clinic. We can maybe touch on it later, but ways to get people into the clinic as fast as possible, just as they do in a TIA. And ideally, we like to see people within a couple of weeks of their event, not least because histories, of course, fade with the passage of time. And also there's lots of important things like driving ability and do they need investigating and so forth. So we get them into the clinic as soon as we can, and then we take the history. And of course, that is importantly, not just from the individual patient, but ideally from a witness. So as many sources of information as you can, if they've turned up in the emergency department, see what went on there, talk to family, friends. And of course, we use the phone an awful lot. So people come on their own, particularly in these sort of uncertain post-COVID times. A lot of patients still not quite sure whether they can bring somebody with them, but that's okay as long as you can phone a witness and get the story. So that's our first and fundamental job is to get the story and then have a think about what the differential is and where we might go to from there. Mm -hmm. And what kind of things in the history are you looking for to help you make that diagnosis? So I suppose there's broadly two groups of people that come to see you. There's people with transient loss of consciousness, as we call it nowadays, TLOC or blackouts, as patients will often refer to it. So that's one group of patients. And then there's the funny turns, inverted commas, which is the other group of people. In other words, people who haven't actually collapsed to the ground as such, but have had some kind of curious event or events. And of course, both of those may be the presenting features of epilepsy, but there's a broad differential. So if we think about the TLOC, 
TLOC group, about 90% of people with TLOC are going to have one of three diagnoses, either an epileptic seizure or a dissociative attack, what I call a dissociative attack, we'll come back to terminology in a moment, or syncope, which is just not enough blood getting from the heart to the head, and most commonly, of course, fainting, but there are other causes of syncope. And there are little clues that you go through, so the circumstances of the event, what were they doing, were they well or unwell, what were the patient's warning symptoms, if any at all, what do they remember afterwards, did they sustain any injuries, and if so, what, and there are certain injuries that prick our goes up more than others, probably the classic being a lateral tongue bite, which is remarkably uncommon in anything other than an epileptic convulsion. So there's little sort of things that you pick up. And then again, taking the witness through the same story, being aware, of course, that particularly if the witness is a loved one or a family member, it can be quite distressing for them. And actually, they can sometimes get quite upset. Witnesses sometimes reliving it for the first time going through it with you. So a little bit of sensitivity and understanding required as well. And then on the basis of that, try to build up a picture about what you thought went on. And that will hopefully lead you to the correct diagnosis. Of course, sometimes there's no witnesses. And that makes life a little bit more difficult. Sometimes the witnesses and all the patient are maybe struggling a little bit with the history. So there are all sorts of challenges challenges involved. Sometimes they may have learning or intellectual disabilities that may impair the history. They may have other degenerative diseases, dementia, for instance. So there are various challenges along the way, but you have to use as many sources of information as you can to build up the picture. Mm-hmm. And can a diagnosis be made based on a first fit? Yeah, okay. So you put your finger on an interesting area of debate at the moment. So it used to be the case that a single isolated seizure was insufficient to make a diagnosis of epilepsy. The point being that actually the majority of people who have a single epileptic seizure do not go on and have more. And the definition of epilepsy is an enduring predisposition to recurrent unprovoked seizures. Now, things have changed in the last two or three years. It's a bit like the analogy with multiple sclerosis, as such that if you have an isolated seizure and you have risk factors that suggest your risk of having a recurrent seizure is significantly high, then you can nowadays identify epilepsy in that situation. And so the situations I'm trying to think of are, so somebody who's had, say, a teenager who's had their first epileptic convulsion, and you do an EEG, and it's very abnormal, suggestive of epileptic discharges or epileptiform discharges, that would be one situation. If you see somebody who's had a previous brain insult, and the obvious ones are previous stroke or previous traumatic brain injury that's left them with scarring on the brain that you may see on brain imaging, that again is a situation where you may predict a high risk of recurrence. So you can, in certain circumstances, diagnose epilepsy the first time round, but the majority of people know a single epileptic seizure is insufficient for a diagnosis of epilepsy. And that's one of the important things we try and get across to people in the clinic is the difference with that. And of course, that means that we would not normally start people on treatment after an isolated seizure. And there are slightly different DVLA regulations as well. So after you see the patients in clinic and you think that there is a likelihood that this could be epilepsy, do those patients go on to have outpatient investigations or is it something that you just monitor in the outpatient setting and only in certain circumstances would they have investigations? So certainly if you are considering epilepsy, most people 
would undergo some form of neurological investigation, depending on the scenario. And of course, the two key investigations are an EEG and brain imaging, most commonly MR brain imaging. Now, you could suggest that ideally everybody would have both, and some people pursue that. We try and be a little bit more selective and we try and think about what are the indications for specific investigations. And to be as simplistic as I can, and I appreciate a lot of my epileptology colleagues will shudder when I say this, but to be simplistic, younger people will typically be presenting with what we nowadays refer to as a genetic generalized epilepsy syndrome, what in the past have been referred to as idiopathic generalized epilepsy or primary generalized epilepsy. And they're people who are born with apparently structurally normal brains, but there's something in the software of the brain, to use the computer analogy, that's not quite right. And they're the people who EEGs are particularly helpful because the EEG will pick up the generalized epileptiform discharges that you're looking for, whereas structural imaging will be generally unremarkable. And usually most people who are going to present with that form of epilepsy will have done so by their early 20s. So it becomes increasingly uncommon beyond the age of the mid-20s. And all the adults that we see, which actually makes up the vast majority of our population, they're people where you're far more concerned about hardware abnormalities. So structural abnormalities, which is where brain imaging comes in and become less and less interested in EEG abnormalities. Now, that's a gross generalization. And as I say, lots of people will pick holes with that strategy, but just as a generalization. And of course, you've got your standard EEG and then there's various variations on EEG. You can do 24-hour prolonged monitoring. You can do enhanced video EEGs and ultimately bring patients in for a few days into hospital and have video telemetry EEG. So there's various gradations of EEG technology. And MR imaging is the ideal form of imaging. We know it's not always possible. There are some situations where you might not investigate. And I'm thinking about, for instance, people in whom investigating might prove difficult or distressing. So, for instance, people with advanced dementia living in a nursing home. If you've got a good history, and you often have because you've got carers there, then you may not proceed to investigations and you may just treat them. Equally, some people with advanced or severe intellectual disabilities where trying to investigate them would just be too distressing and you don't think it's appropriate to sedate them. So there's always room for debate and consideration about what you might do. And at the risk of repeating myself, but just so I understand it and hopefully the listeners understand, what happens then when, you know, it's time to start treatment and to label a patient? Because if we can't put that label on a patient after their first attack, but they have an investigation, an EG, for example, that would be in keeping with epilepsy, would you then label them as epileptic and begin treatment after the investigation? Or would you wait for a second attack before you did? Both is the unhelpful answer, Marilena. So the guidelines currently recommend that that would be one of the situations you've just outlined. So a single seizure with a definitively abnormal EEG with undoubted epileptal discharges, that would be a situation to consider treatment. And usually what I would do is I would get those patients back and we would have a discussion about the pros and cons of starting treatment. And that's quite a difficult discussion because they're often young people and young people, as you know, are not massively enthusiastic about starting uh, daily medication, which they're gonna have to take for at least a couple of years and quite rightly so. On the other hand, you have to sort of consider the potential harm of seizures. And we're particularly talking about convulsions here. As you know, convulsions can sometimes be harmful themselves. People injure themselves as a result result and occasionally tragically drown and very bad outcomes like that. And just 
just occasionally, and it is rare, but it does happen, but seizures themselves can be fatal. So there is a dark side, if you like, to epilepsy, which is one of the reasons we treat it. So when you have a discussion with people about whether to start treatment, those are the sort of things that you have to incorporate in your discussion. You know, obviously, whether it's a male or a female is another important aspect aspects of lifestyle, what they're doing and so forth. So there's quite a lot that goes on in that conversation when you're deciding about whether to start treatment or not. And of course, different doctors have different levels of enthusiasm for treating as well. I think I'm probably quite at the conservative end. And that's often part of the conversation as well. So the annoying answer to your question is it's up for discussion and debate. I think there isn't a sort of definitive clear cut yes or no response to that. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, it would be good to discuss treatment, seeing as, you know, the conversation quite naturally led there. But I appreciate that that is very difficult to generalise and it would be very patient specific. Obviously, there are the nice guidelines which we could look at to help us. But what's your approach to commencing treatment in patients in a very you know generalised form? Yeah. So firstly, I mean, the mainstay is medication. What's previously been referred to as anticonvulsant medication, then was anti-epileptic drugs. And nowadays, the vogue is for anti-seizure medication, ASMs for short. So that's the mainstay. But of course, there are some other treatments, non-drug therapies, just to pause about, particularly in the pediatric population, which I don't deal with at all. So I'm not an expert at all. But things like ketogenic diets, for instance. And then, of course, at the other extreme, there's more invasive treatments such as epilepsy surgery uh, and vagal nerve stimulators and so forth. Those would only really be treatments for people who failed on multiple medications. So drugs are or medications are the mainstay of treatment. And we've got a rough idea of, again, we broadly divide epilepsies into the generalized epilepsies and the focal epilepsies. And there are some preferences in terms of drugs. But really what matters is the patient in front of you. So the characteristics of the person in front of you, their sex, their age, maybe what other medications they're on because there are various interactions, their own preference. Sometimes some patients are quite knowledgeable about drugs. They may have family members who are on other medications that they've heard about. So all of those things come into the conversation and the debate. But in broad terms, the three presently, the three front runners, if you like, would be lamotrigine, sodium valproate and levetiracetam. And we'll just pause on sodium valproate because that's a a drug that, as you know, has been in the news quite a lot over the last few years and longer. There's always been for a long time been a concern about using valproate in women of childbearing potential because of the teratogenetic effects. But only recently, the MHRA have announced tightening regulations for men as well because of concerns. So that has been one of the frontline drugs. But I think probably in the near future will become less so because of tightening of the MHR regulations, which leaves us with Lamotrigine and Levotrastam as probably the two main frontline drugs, and then a long list of potential alternatives, which all have various roles. And can I ask, if we kind of take a step away from the first fit clinic and the initial diagnosis of these patients, myself and, you know, a lot of my colleagues and doctors in training will see these patients when they come to MAU and they've been admitted and, you know, the presenting complaint is increasing attacks. In that situation, is there any role for the acute medic or the medical SHO or the medical registrar to tamper with these patients' drug doses, or should that always be discussed with the neurologist? 
I think ideally discuss it with their epilepsy specialist, which may be a neurologist, but not always. But just to go back to what you said, is there a role for the general medic? There definitely is a role for that. I mean, I'm we're very aware and very grateful to you all for assessing our patients in the emergency department. And if I could get your listeners to do one thing, Marilena, it would be this. When you see these people in the emergency department or on the acute assessment unit or wherever you happen to see them, take some blood to check drug levels. We can test the amount of drug for most of the anti-seizure medications. And the reason I say that is because that sort of random spot check can be very helpful and actually sometimes rather surprising to us. It is a curiosity how many times we discover that there actually is no drug on board. And of course, that gives you a good reason as to why people may be having ongoing seizures. There really are only three reasons why someone with epilepsy has ongoing seizures despite treatment. The first is they may have drug-resistant epilepsy, which unfortunately is a good 30% of people with epilepsy. The second is that you may have the diagnosis wrong. And actually, they may not have epilepsy and therefore anti-seizure medications are not going to fix the problem. And the third reason is because for whatever reason, your patient is not taking the medication and that's where the blood level will come in. But to get back to your original question, I think ideally always liaise with their epilepsy specialist. Sometimes you'll discover that they may not have one or they, you know, they've been lost to follow up or they've been discharged or whatever. And then I think a very important part of your job is to bring them back to the attention of the epilepsy team. But I think because the whole business has got quite complicated now, with no disrespect, I think it probably is the job for an epileptologist in the same way that I would be extremely nervous slash utterly reluctant to fiddle about with any, say, cardiology drugs, for instance. So I think we all recognise in all our areas of medicine, things have become complicated and probably best, therefore, to liaise with a specialist directly as best you can. Yes. Okay. I think that's very helpful. And I think no talk on epilepsy and seizures would be complete without discussing, I know there are lots of terms for this, but pseudo-seizures or dissociative attacks. So how can we as juniors differentiate one from the other? Yeah, let's get terminology out of the way, first of all, because you're right, there's a dizzying array of terms which all effectively mean the same thing. So pseudo-seizures, non-epileptic attacks or non-epileptic seizures, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. I call them dissociative attacks or dissociative seizures, mainly because that's a useful descriptive term. I think there is a little bit of negative connotation with things like pseudo-seizures or non-epileptic attacks. Certainly, as you know, patients often don't like the phrase psychogenic, which comes with all sorts of connotations. So the reason I use dissociative attacks is because A, I think it's a descriptive term and B, it's sort of inoffensive. The last thing you want to do is to get at odds with your patient. So how do you differentiate? With considerable difficulty, I think is the honest answer. I'm not here referring just to non-specialists or trainees. I'm referring to all of us. We all find this difficult. We recognise that we mislabel people with epilepsy who have dissociative attacks and vice versa. And of course, we recognise that in some of our patients, they have a difficult combination of both epilepsy and dissociative attacks, which is a very difficult situation. I think in short, the answer is it's putting everything together. It's the frequency, it's the general pattern, to some extent, the kind of patient you have in front of you. Some people have obvious risk factors for dissociative attacks. It's seeing the attacks if you can, whether that's live in front of you in the MAU or on video that maybe family may have captured on mobile phones. And sometimes that can be sufficient. Sometimes there are very obvious characteristics of either epileptic convulsions or focal seizures or sometimes dissociative attacks 
attacks, but none of these are fail safe. And sometimes you can look at attacks on videos and still be a bit uncertain. It's a very difficult area. And even my most skilled epileptology colleagues will tell you that these are sometimes the most difficult scenarios they face, trying to decide what actually is the diagnosis. And that's when patients end up being in hospital for a week or two with video telemetry to try and answer that very question. So it's challenging. And again, I think one of the important things to highlight to non-specialists, if I can use that term, is be wary about labelling something a dissociative attack because it looks weird. Because indeed, in some ways, the weirder it looks, the more and more worried you become about, about epilepsy. And some of our patients with forms of frontal epilepsy, for instance, which can produce very, very strange and often quite weird looking attacks, can quite easily get mislabeled as having dissociative attacks, where in fact, they're actually true blue epilepsy attacks. So just be wary about it. And again, I think that becomes the job of the specialist. But any descriptive information you can give about what you saw is very helpful. And I always look in the records in the ED to see what people have described. And it's much more helpful to me that you actually describe what you saw than you just write down, looks psychogenic to me or something like that, which is a bit more difficult. So I know it's tedious, but if you can actually write down what you saw, how quickly they recovered back to apparent full consciousness, those kind of things are very helpful to us when we're trying to sort of piece it together later. And do these patients require treatment with medication? What, people with dissociative attacks, you mean? Yes. Well, not anti-seizure medication, provided you're satisfied that they have pure dissociative attacks. And in general terms, most people will have one or the other. We know there's a tricky group who have a combination of both, but fortunately, they're a minority. So I think not to anti-seizure medication. And often you find these people have acquired anti-seizure medication for reasons that you can readily understand. And one of the difficult jobs is taking those away Where you might think about drug treatment is because there is a crossover with mental health difficulties and psychiatric comorbidity, and those conditions may lend themselves more to drug treatment, although, of course, you're going to be involving your mental health colleagues along with those decisions. So actually, a lot of these people, we're trying to get rid of drugs, both prescribed and otherwise, than necessarily start them and very definitely want to try and either avoid starting anti-seizure medication or if they're already on them, withdrawing them. But no, there isn't a drug equivalent of an anti-dissociative attack drug. Right. Okay. And in terms of when you're seeing a patient in hospital who is having a seizure, I think there's a tendency, I appreciate very limited experience compared to yourself, a tendency for us to draw up the medication and just give it straight away rather than, you know, start the stopwatch. And if, you know, we pass the five minutes, then consider giving treatment. Do you think that if we're seeing a seizure in front of us, we should be treating straight away? Or actually, we do need to give that time to the patients before treating an acute seizure? Yeah, it's a very wise question, Marilena, and I appreciate exactly the situation you're getting at. And of course, I appreciate it's a situation I'm rarely faced with anymore. I have to go back a few years before I can remember doing those kind of things. So I know exactly the situation. And it's very difficult, of course, as doctors in an emergency department or an assessment unit to sit idly by while somebody is convulsing because it's a pretty alarming situation. I think the answer to your question is actually most convulsions are usually over within between 30 to 120 seconds which is pretty brief. And actually, if you can draw up some diazepam or lorazepam or whatever it might be and get a Venflon in and manage to administer it within that time frame, you're doing quite well. So actually, I think by the time you've got it drawn up and when you turn back to your patient and realize the convulsion is over, 
And of course, they, they may then be going into their deep sort of sleep postictal period, then probably you don't need to give it. But if they're still convulsing, then probably that is a prolonged seizure. And probably you're absolutely right to administer the acute treatment, which is your benzodiazepines. And of course, once they've gone on for longer than five or 10 minutes, then you're entering into status epilepticus territory, which we know is dangerous and we know does require rapid and urgent treatment. And that's when you're going to be getting out your intravenous levetiracetam or maybe phenytoin or valproate, depending on your hospital protocol, but something alongside your immediate rescue benzos to try and get hold of their seizures. All the time, of course, just keep in the back of your head, just sort of thinking, because again, dissociative attacks can sometimes present in that kind of pseudo status kind of way. But I think the general view of most of us is that we prefer you to treat the most dangerous situation, which is status epilepticus, because if you overtreat dissociative attacks, that's not such a bad error as undertreating status epilepticus. I'm very aware that whatever I say is very difficult to sort of put that in action when it's in real life, when you're faced with that threatening situation. But as I say, I think the bottom line is most convulsions are pretty rapid affairs and over and done with. And anything that's going on longer than about a minute, I think it's very reasonable to treat those. Yeah. Okay. I guess... My final question, I knew that before we discussed about the three kinds of patients where you might need to think about changing their medication, either because they're not taking them or, you know, they're undertreated or the group, unfortunately, they're treatment resistant. But is there such thing as a seizure threshold in which an acute illness or an acute stressful period or, you know, any form of external factor can lower a patient's seizure threshold for a short period of time in which case their treatment might need to change? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think that's particularly pertinent in children. And Mm -hmm. as I say, I have no paediatric expertise, so I would defer to my paediatric colleagues. But we know that immature brains often react rather differently. So febrile convulsions being the most Mm -hmm. obvious example of that. So for instance, febrile convulsions is not really an acceptable diagnosis in adults. That's the first thing to say. I think as doctors, we're always looking for reasons, aren't we? So when people come in and they've had a seizure and you sort of think, well, maybe they had an infection of some sort. I think we're often looking for reasons in those situations. I think the point is the definition of epilepsy is a tendency to unprovoked seizures. So actually, you often don't identify a cause for a seizure. Of course, if the patient says, well, actually, I've forgotten to take my medication for the last week, I mean, that might be pertinent. I think stressful situations never makes anything better, does it? So stress is sometimes associated. But again, I think one's a bit wary. I think what you're really getting at is if you've got somebody who is well controlled, say they haven't had a seizure for, let's say, over a year, and then they have one out of the blue, what should you do? And I think the answer is you hunt around around, you see if there's any persuasive reasons that you really would accept as a trigger. And the most reliable triggers, in my view, are recreational drug use, particularly things like cocaine and amphetamines and things like that. Alcohol, unfortunately, forgetting to take your pills. I'm more cautious about the whole issue of infection. I think you have to be quite unwell before you really have your seizure threshold lowered in that kind of way. And sometimes prescription drugs. So sometimes, you know, have they been started on any new drugs recently? Is worth having a little to look at. But I think oftentimes you come up empty handed and you just have to accept that they've had a seizure. And then, yes, you may then say, well, they failed on this treatment regime. Do we need to either increase the dose of the current drug or do we need to think about alternative drugs? So certainly should trigger a review. Right. Okay. 
I think that's the end of my questions. I know that you've already given us advice about checking drug levels in patients acutely presenting to the hospital, but is there any other advice that you think us as junior doctors should take on board when assessing these patients? No, I think we've covered most of it. I mean, I think, you know, directly inform ideally the epilepsy team, whether that means emailing the epilepsy nurses, if you have them or direct the consultant, I'm perfectly happy receiving emails about patients. Indeed, that's what I prefer. And then I can review what's gone on. I think the only other thing we haven't really talked about is the driving regulations. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's an important legal issue. And that does pertain to all doctors. So that's not something you can just defer to specialists. So I think just remember the qualifying factor is the possession of a license whether that's provisional or whether it's full. So the question is not so much, do you drive? It's, do you have a license? I do appreciate many people have licenses, don't necessarily use it to drive. And providing the correct advice is an important medical legal aspect, which does apply to yourselves in the MAU as much as it does to us in clinics. But no, I think otherwise we've covered the important things. I think the point is epilepsy, like all areas, has become quite specialised. And I think whilst you often see it at the front door, I think most of these patients should then be coming to us. I think days of it just being dealt with at a general physician level. And again, I say this with no disrespect whatsoever, are really sort of over, depending on your geographical circumstances, I appreciate. And we do expect these patients to be coming to us. And we're very keen that they come to us and very happy to accept your referrals. Great. Thank you so much. And just mentioning the driving regulations, I will make sure that there's the DVLA guidance link on the footnotes of this show for anyone that wants to refresh their knowledge on that. So I guess there's nothing left to do other than me to thank you, Dr. Davenport, for your time, for your knowledge and for explaining everything so nicely to me and to our listeners. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I hope it's helpful. 